You're listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. For more information, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk. So this is Daniel chapter 11, verses 20 to 35. I'd just like to say it's a short prayer before we read it, because I found it rather difficult, this passage. But Lord, it is your word. This is the word of God. So Father God, we pray that you'll graciously pour out your Holy Spirit on Jamie as he preaches to us this morning and open our eyes to what you are saying to us in this passage today. For Jesus' sake. Amen. The King of the North's successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who's not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall into battle, will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery he will corrupt those who have uh, violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end. 
for it will still come at the appointed time. Thank you very much, Anne, for leading us in our Bible passage today. You almost gave me a look that said, good luck when you hand it over there. Well, um, there are a few visitors here today, and so let me just start off by saying a few things. And I, I, I say this occasionally, or with frequency. And that's that, um, as, as a church, we believe wholeheartedly that all of Scripture is God-breathed, every single part of it. And so for that reason, that we go through books of the Bible, we try not to duck or avoid, but under the constraints of you know, a short time that we have on a Sunday morning, we try as best at least to go through the Bible in a systematic way, because we don't want to avoid some of the difficult things that come up. And some of the stuff that, let's face it, quite frankly, are, are very hard to, to understand when we come to them, and we look at it and we think, oh my goodness, what is this going on about? Perhaps you do that when you come across some of the genealogies in the Bible, like what you see in Matthew, and you see all the names and the kings and the the temptations just to skip through that and think, my goodness, you know, this is not the right time, right before bed, lying in bed, 10 to 11 at night, and you think, I just can't go through this, I'm going to nod off. Or maybe if you go through numbers or some of these long lists of kings that rise and fall in the Old Testament, and let's be honest, it's just quite hard sometimes to read through that or to try and glean any value from it. But in this church, we truly believe, as I have said, that this is God's word. This is God's word, and what you've had read to you this morning are not the words of some dodgy bloke from Essex. They are the words from God Almighty. And therefore, we believe that the scriptures say that all of it is for our benefits. It's for our edification. It's for our encouragement. It's for our challenging. It's for our building up, even difficult passages like today. Despite what some scholars might say, So one Old Testament scholar, he says that this chapter 11 shouldn't be preached in a sermon. He said it might be okay for a Bible study, but not for exaltation, which is what preaching is about. And when you read for it, as we just have had it read, you might agree. Because of its details and its wordiness, as I said, it reminds us of those long lists and we think, well, what, how on earth am I going to need this? This might be something just to, to bank, and maybe I'll draw upon it once or twice in my life, but otherwise, let's just shelve this. I mean, let me ask you a question. How many times have you ever heard a sermon on Daniel 11? We're, we're pretty good at the first parts, right? Daniel's lion and the lion's den, pretty good at the fiery furnace, and all those wonderful stories, maybe even the visions to a certain degree. But Daniel 11, I bet not many of us have heard about this. And we do have a short time together, There's a lot of very fine detail in this chapter. I do not have time to be able to do that this morning. It's not a cop-out. Actually, call me sad, but I really enjoyed going through this. I am a commentary man, and I love commentaries, and I love reading about all these people that here are just described as kings. They're actually real people grounded in history. You can look up their names, and you can plot them in our actual historical documents outside of the Bible as well. It's fascinating stuff that's happening here. And if, like me, you're a bit of a spotter, a bit of an anorak, and you want to know more, then I'll happily pass on some commentaries for you. But what I'm trying to do this morning is to try and give us a a sweeping overview about what this chapter is saying. And then hopefully, by God's good grace, as Anne has prayed, we can apply it to our hearts and see what it means for us today, that Jesus may be loved and honoured. So... 
we approach Scripture through the lens of 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Yeah, it's difficult. But I believe it's God's word and therefore important. May it be food for your souls today, we pray. So, in essence, what we have here is an overview of three stages. And that did not come up in order at all. And it's just completely disappeared. That's okay. Three stages. Sometimes because of the amount of detail that we have, it becomes a bit complicated. But I want you to view this chapter in three key stages, okay? So you'll remember last week we looked at Daniel 10, obviously, in order, and this was the beginning of the prophecies, or the beginning of this final and third prophecy, this vision that Daniel had been given from God. And it's broken down really into three stages. What's it an overview of? Well, the first 19 verses are covering about a 370-year period. You won't pick that up reading it, but it is. It's covering a a huge sum of time, 370 years approximately. And it's starting from the end of the Babylonian exile to the beginning of the Persian rule, as it's uh, introduced, where Daniel, as we already know, is in his uh, old age, probably 80 years plus. In those 19 years, sorry, in those 19 verses, we are presented with a series of prophecies, In fact, in this chapter, there are more prophecies in this one chapter alone than any other chapter in the whole of the Bible. It is absolutely jam-packed with prophecies. And so specific are these prophecies. They include prophecies about kings, about rulers, about marriages, about defeats, about murders. Again, you can look these up in the history books. And because it is so specific in its nature, some scholars and some Bible teachers have said, look, this could not have been written by Daniel because it is, it's just too spot on. It's scary how accurate this is. This must have been written much after the life of Daniel. Some people even say first, second century after Christ. But we refute such claims. Why? Because we believe in a mighty God who sees all of history, who sees all of time, is all in his hands from beginning to present to end. And we believe in that God. And if you don't, your God is too small. Because we believe in an almighty God who sees it all, because he is the Alpha and the Omega. So we refute those claims. And we know that our God speaks because he is outside of time. So to map this out briefly, this chapter briefly, the first thing to note in order, okay, to find our bearing, is that geographically speaking, we're talking about Israel. Israel's the centre here, okay? And so in this chapter, uh, when you hear about kings of the north and kings of the south, they're talking about north and south of the land of Israel. And as I said, this is over a 370-year uh, period. It's a continuation of, of, of rising up, or the rising up and lowering down of various kingdoms in the north and in the south. And inevitably, what you happen with Israel in the middle is they get caught up in this gunfight, right? Not a gunfight, you know what I mean, bow and arrows and slings or whatever. They get caught up in the middle and drawn into it. And the kings of the north and the kings of the south want to, to dominate and control this middle ground. Verse 1 to 2 prophesies, and I would recommend it's either up there on the screen or you have a book, okay, because you're going to have to keep tapped in here. You're going to have to keep logged on. Okay, if you do not, if you log off, 
you will not find your way back in. Verse 1 to 2 prophesizes the demise of the Persians, okay? Particularly Xerxes, you would have heard of maybe in the film or, you know, the old films. At the hands of the mighty Greeks under the leadership of, go on, have a go, Alexandra the Great. That's right. Here, verses 3 to 4, he's called the, the warrior king. He dies, we, we covered this the other week, he dies but with no heirs because his sons are killed. His huge kingdom is split up into four kingdoms under four generals. Can you see it there in the passage? It says, I think, to the four winds in the, in the uh, NIV study. But never do we see them rule with the same clout and the same authority as under Alexandra the Great, verse 4. The next 15 verses are centred on the kings of the south who were the Ptolemies, okay, who took effectively uh, Egypt. And in the north, you have the Seleucids, okay, who took, amongst other places, Syria. And in between, they're vying for Israel in the middle, as I've said. Now, even though they aren't particularly superpowers, they, um, and when you think of superpowers from Greece, you think of who comes after Greece, who do you think in terms of historically the next big power? That's right, the Romans. So you don't particularly think of the Ptolemies or, or you don't particularly think of the Seleucids. But they are mentioned because they're intrinsically linked with the, the history and what's going on, the life of Israel. So now even though they're, they're not particularly superpowers, uh, you think of, of Rome as the next one. And that's happening, that's brooding in the background. But in the interim period, the Egyptians uh, down south and the Syrians up north... Uh, are playing these significant parts in this chapter, so much so there's a, quite a few verses dedicated to them. Can you see? The king of the north and the king of the south. So in this 15-verse chunk, we see some amazingly clear prophecies, as I said, such as marriage agreements, verse 6. Who takes the throne of Egypt, verse 7. Specific wars, verse 8. If invasions, verse 9. Counterattacks, verse 11. And God taking care of the arrogant and insolent kings, and in verse 19, as we sung about in our song, it's God who sits on the highest place, and kingdoms can rage, and kingdoms can war, and kingdoms can gob off, but it is ultimately God who is sovereign, and God who sits on the throne. So with great accuracy, the Bible then predicts, the Lord Jesus, the Lord uh, predicts when, who, and where. And that is observable in our history books. Exactly, exactly as Daniel prophesied here. And this detail in a, a, a huge period of, of 350, 370 years. And I, I find that spectacular. That the Bible speaks God's truth. And it points us to a sovereign, all-knowing God whose eyes are over this world. So that's, that's, that's phase one, if you like. Wars, rumours of wars, kings in the north, kings in the south, fighting amongst themselves. The next key phrase that we see here is verses 21 uh, to 23. And it's a major one in the life of Israel. You're with me, yeah? Amen, sister. You're all with me. Okay, come on. We can do this. The next key phrase, verses 21 to 23, a major one in the life of Israel. After around seven Seleucid kings and a 150-year period, the scriptures tell us, do you see it, that this contemptible person shall arise, you see it, yeah? Track with me. And gain power, not by royal succession, as it happens, but by, do you see it? But by, yeah, or in my version, flattery. So this was the dreaded man, Antiochus. We looked at him the other week. 
And again, if you refer to the history books, he gained power by, by, by uh, not because he had the right like royal succession to the throne, but by forming a pact with the king of Pergamon, okay, who resourced him to take it. We see that in verses 22 and 23. So this evil, wicked Seleucid king gains power not by his birthright, but by flattery and by making a, a pact with the king of Pergamon. Okay, so whilst he may have had the gift of the gab, he was not a respected or feared man behind the scenes. So he was introduced as a contemptible person, despised. History books show us that this Antiochus was a, effectively an egomaniac. Okay, he, let me give you an example. He called himself, and you may know, you may remember, Antiochus Epiphanes, that's right. And Epiphanes just literally means God manifest or God made present. And what is he saying by his coins? And you can look at them in the, the London Museum, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. He's saying, I am God. I am a God and I walk on this earth as a God and you must bow before me. And he thought that he should be worshipped accordingly. Now, interestingly, Antiochus Epiphanes, his self-proclaimed title, behind the scenes was referred to as Antiochus Epimenes which means madman, okay? So there's a play on words. You're not God, you're mad. You're off your rocker, okay? You are completely crazy. That's what they thought of him behind his back. So, and we're going through this at the speed of a thousand gazelles, you can imagine then that for someone with such a self-inflated opinion, I am God, I shall do as I please, okay? With such a self-inflated opinion... That after back and forth wars between the north and the south, he's already defeated Egypt, he's going back down there for another round, that he is completely humiliated on his return to Egypt. Picking up verse 29, follow with me. We read of his defeat and his humiliation at the hands of that rising superpower brooding in the background. So in some of your translations, it will say from the western coastlands, yeah? Or in some of your translations, if you've got ESV, it will say from, from Kittim, okay? So this is talking about Rome that are now rising up. And they are about to humiliate this person when their delicate, okay, Gaius Populus Lanus. I just think we need to bring back some of these names, by the way, okay, for our kids. Whoever's next, don't look at me, okay? Five and out, okay? Whoever has the next one, let's come up with some cool names like that. Gaius Populus Lenus. Okay, so he shows up. He, he appears before Antiochus, and he says, Antiochus, this self-proclaimed God, he draws a circle, okay, around Antiochus, like that, in the sand, and he says, you can either stand or you can fight, but either way, by the time you've left that circle, make up your mind. And if you decided to stand and fight, you will lose. We will utterly annihilate you. And he knew, despite the self-inflated ego, that he was no match for the rising power of Rome. And that's what we're reading about here. And so humiliated he was, and it's important you follow the text, so humiliated was he, knowing that he could not win, and the dent that this had on his reputation, that he flees, and where does he go? Back to the land of the covenant, which is Israel. Okay? So he goes back to Israel... And he starts to unleash his fury and this embarrassment that he's faced upon the Jews. 
Jehovah's people, God's people, whom he despised so very much. Josephus, the historian, tells us that during this period, he slaughtered 80,000 men and women. And we just brush over facts like this, but can you even imagine that? Can you even imagine the pain and the agony and the screaming and the misery and the darkness of 80,000 men, women and children being slaughtered at the hands of Epimenes, the madman? Okay, so Josephus, the historian who's quite helpful to us during this period, he also tells us that not only did he kill men, women, children, he burns the scriptures of God's covenant people, he stops them being allowed to to perform the circumcision, he stops the Sabbath, he removes the high priest, who I think here is referred to as the uh, the prince, he removes their altars, he puts one up uh, in complete defiance to God, to the Greek god Zeus, And he sacrifices pigs, which was a dirty, unclean animal to the Jews, on their altars. And that's what you see, uh, verses 29 to 35. It says that he seeks to deceive God's people, excuse me, and he does so by using flattery to lead God's people astray. And some of them are led astray. God's people are sometimes led astray by big, powerful things. And some will rise up, it says there in the text. And if I had time, I'd talk about the Maccabean revolt here from Matthias and from Judas, the way in which they uh, revolted against him and how we came about to celebrate, and we should celebrate, uh, uh, Hanukkah, the Jewish festival. Uh, But again, we don't have time to talk about that. Pick up a good commentary. Okay, so so this second phase, do you get it, is talking about the rise of Antiochus' self-proclaimed epiphany. So, So bank that, yeah? First phase, kings, north, south, wars, rumours of war. Uh, Second phase, we've got the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes, this dreadful man who the scriptures say he will uh, desolate the temple of this abomination. The third and final phase, which we have here, verses 36 to 45, is debated over, over, and it's debating over whether this is talking about a far, far, far future event or whether this is still talking about Antiochus. Some say this continues to talk about Antiochus and his evil deeds, but many scholars agree that verses 40 to 45 is not a good fit for Antiochus. This is not how he dies, and we know that from the history books. And so many people, myself included, take this final portion to be speaking of an Antichrist, the Antichrist, who, as I've tried to demonstrate in this series, is the one pictured as the the little horn. He's the one pictured as the coming ruler. Or if you pick up in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians, he's described as the man of lawlessness, the man destined to destruction. In Revelation, he's referred to as, as the beast, but we know this person as the Antichrist, which is my, my view likewise. Now, uh, as I said, this can't, I don't think this can be Antiochus because he dies in a different way. But again, some scholars point to maybe this is speaking of a first century evil man. Uh, When you look uh, throughout our history books, you've seen some terribly wicked men that have risen up and have persecuted God's people. So look, for example, at Emperor Nero and some of the stuff he did towards God's people. Look, for example, in more recent times in the the 20th century with Nazi Germany and the persecution towards the, the Jewish people there. And so all throughout ages, what we've seen is the rising up of these tyrannical figures. But I think what this is speaking to is, in fact, talking of the Antichrist. Okay, so moving on. The point is, in this section, section three, third phase, is that whoever it is, or whoever these people are, 
and I understand it to be the Antichrist, they will rise up, and notice how the language now changes from 29 and 35. It says, from appointed times, it now changes to verse 40 and into chapter 12 to talk of the end times, referring to this third portion. Yeah, you see it there. It's talking of something that's going to happen at the very end. And this person, whoever he is, will rise up. He will exalt and magnify himself as God, which is why there's some... Uh, some similarities with uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. So, let's, that, that, that was literally as quick as I could do it, okay? That's the best I can do. So, a prophetic overview of time. Verses 5 to 20, wars, kings fighting, dodgy marriages, okay? Verses 20 to 35, the abomination of desolation from Antiochus Epiphanes. And finally, verses 36 to 45, the Antichrist. Okay, well done. I'm going to print you all off a theology certificate. You've passed with distinction. All still awake. Well done. Okay. That's a sweeping overview. The next question becomes, as we've read through all of that, so what? Who cares? How is this profitable for me, pastor? How is this building me up? How is this edifying How is this encouraging? You say, Jamie, this is not encouraging. This is worrying. You're describing war after war and something that's just going to get really, really bad for God's people at the very end. Horrifically bad. Yes. And that's a valid question. And so we need to remind ourselves to whom were these prophecies given and for what purpose. They were given to God's people. They were given to a discouraged people who upon their return back to their land were to face were facing hardship and would face much more and disappointment and what does God tell them through Daniel well I find it interesting as we go through this book series that unlike the first half of Daniel that we talk about in the Bible and illustrate in our children's books that God's people aren't necessarily going to be rescued this time are they they're neither rescued from the fiery furnace they are, neither rescue, they are not rescued from the mouths of the lions initially. Okay? And church, the truth is that they are going to go through, we are going to go through much worse, and many will die at the hands of this great evil. And church, again, I've got to level with you, because some of you have been taught some very worrying things. That Christianity is some sort of a bed of roses theology and nothing bad comes to God's people. It's simply not true. God's people live in a broken world and they suffer the disappointments and not only highs but lows and sadnesses and they go through death's dark valley like everyone else. And that is what the Bible teaches us. Peter the Apostle writes, don't think it's strange When you, God's people, go through the fiery trials. The question here isn't, are we going to go through it? Or are God's people going to go through it? It's actually showing us when you go through it. When you go through it. And the philosophical question is, when you do, why? Why Why do God's people have to go through this, right? Why do God's people have to go through pain and misery and disappointment and trials and, and sufferings? You say, Lord, I know you're on the throne, but why don't you do something to help me? Why don't you help me out? Where are you? Maybe some of you are going through that today. 
And you're asking, where are you, Lord? Why don't you do something? And the honest answer is, again, this is, this is tough love. This is medicine, but it's medicine. The honest answer is that Daniel, and indeed God's people, often they don't get the answer to this. They don't get the answer to why God is allowing them to go through it. Think of Job. Job does not get the answer either of what he's going through. He just knows that God is good and God is going to work something out for his glory and for the good of his people. Why seemingly do the wicked prosper? But what we are being shown... I believe, is, is, is two things, and that's what we're going to wrap up with, okay? Two things. That was it. Two things. First thing, that God's word is enough. Church, do you believe that? God's word is enough. And secondly, my trials are not without purpose. My trials are not without purpose. He is working for good for those who stand firm in him, trusting in his promises. So let's whip through these. So fast forward from the prophecy 150 years later. God's people are going through this at the hands of Antiochus. They're going through such evil and suffering that makes all of ours in the UK pale in comparison. And in their anguish and in their darkness under this wicked Seleucid king, cry out, God, where are you? And those that are wise, says there in the text, Point those that are struggling to what? To God's word. And help them to understand it. But by, by turning to God's word, so turning to God's word, chapter 11, we, we see that these prophecies were given not just to tell us exactly what's going on or what's going to happen, but to encourage God's people in their hour, hour of need to turn to his word. They are being commanded to when these things happen, and they're going to happen like this, boom, 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 Come to my word and see what it says. And what do we see? That there is not one thing that surprises God. That he predicted the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Seleucid kings, the Romans, exactly as he said. God sits in the highest place. God sits in the highest place. He knows. He sees it all. But drill down a bit more and you will notice more. Not only would these prophecies be a reminder to God's people and that Antiochus, that God has called it, but also that he has destined their demise. So he's detailing it all what's going to happen, but he's saying none of those kings or kingdoms shall last. And he's predicting every single one of their demise. Follow with me. Verse 11. They will raise a large army. This is God speaking through his, uh, through his prophet Daniel, through Daniel, his servant. It says, they will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. Verse 12, they will slaughter many thousands, yet it will not remain triumphant. Verse 14, the violent men among your own people will rebel, but without success. Verse 17, he will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help them. Do you see how this would be an encouragement to God's people? Not telling them that these things aren't going to happen, but they are going to last for a period of time. Because they are in God's hands and God is sovereign and he determines the outcomes. So God's word didn't just tell uh, God's people that they will avoid trials and tribulations, doesn't say that. But it forewarned them. It showed them exactly what would happen and reminded them that whilst they go through it, it will end because God's word says so. And God's word is enough. I trust in God's word. It's a better word. 
It's a better word for you right now as life and all of its problems close in on you and says you are defeated. God's word speaks a better word and we trust in it. So secondly, so back to those, that first point, God's word is enough. Second and final, not only that God's word is enough when darkness comes, but my trials, my pain and my suffering are not in vain. They are doing something. Dearly beloved, if you are suffering and you are going through trials today, know that you're not suffering in vain if you trust in Christ. He is working through it for good. God is doing something. We were privileged yesterday, a few of us, to speak to Ong Ling and hear how in the midst of great pain and and sorrow and suffering in the nation of Myanmar and Burma, in the middle of uh, hunger and war and death and poverty, Believers like Pastor Ki Chai, one of our mission partners in the slums, reports that in the midst of this adversity, God is refining his church. The church is growing and large numbers are being baptised and coming to the faith. Isn't that a wonderful testimony of what God is doing, refining his people in the midst of persecution? They are being refined. Or up north with one of our mission partners in Lake Galilee Baptist Church, a guy who's given up his life to help bring in addicts, drug addicts, and bring them into a place and and get them off of uh, heroin and get them off uh, opiates and get them clean and then teach them the gospel. And many of them are coming to faith. And many of them as they are being baptized into the faith are then going out and telling others. And they're seeing these wonderful conversions of people coming to the faith in the midst of affliction and pain and suffering. God is refining his church in the midst of darkness. And verses 34 to 35 says, When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Speaks of people uh, self-confessing, believers falling away. But then it says, verse 35, uh, Some of the wise uh, will stumble so that they may be refined purified and made spotless until the time of the end. Brothers and sisters, God's people were told that they would be in the middle of wars, the middle of rumours of wars. They were told that they would go through times of great persecution, epitomised by wicked rulers and, and furthermore by the end time antichrist. And yet they were told to stand firm, to come to God's word, And to remember that their trials are not without purpose, but God sits in the highest place. They were given these prophecies to remind them that they are under the watchful eye of God. You are under the watchful eye of God, a God that loves them and he loves you. He knows them by name and he knows you by name. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to come onto a cross and to die for you. Such is the value that he placed on you. He covets you. He loves you. He longs for you. He died for you. And he is watching over you. And you are not alone. And he is not absent during those dark times. That's what scripture tells us. It tells us here specifically of what's going to happen through his servant Daniel. He tells them of their demise, but he also tells them, uh, 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 and you remember the beginning of chapter 2, he reminds them that blessed is God forever, to whom alone belongs wisdom and might, and to him alone changes times and seasons. He's the one that removes kings and sets them up. He is the one that rises up nations. 
and brings them to nothing. Even what we're seeing in today's age, they may gloat and boast in all of their power and spectacular achievements, but it is God who puts them there, and it is God who removes them, and it is God's name that will be honoured. And it says, uh, and to him alone uh, changes times and seasons, removes kings and sets them up and gives wisdom and understanding to his people, those who know him. That's where we're going to land. Those who know him. Furthermore, verse 32, those who, who know him, not just know about him, but are loyal to him and love him and follow his commands, whose lives have been changed by him, those people the scriptures tell us, will stand firm. They will stand firm no matter what. If you are a true believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever comes your way, whatever rises up, whatever powers come your way, whatever disappointments come your way, whatever darknesses, you will stand firm. doesn't mean you won't falter or you won't stumble, but you will stand firm because your hope is in Jesus. And those whose hope is in the Lord will never... It's not a trick question. Will never be put to shame they will not be seduced by flattery or buckle under the pressure of wicked leaders persecution of God's people the prevailing culture they will stand God through Daniel has prophesied it. it's not just a prophecy of the things that are going to happen but a prophecy that God's people who know him and love him will stand firm my people who know me though they may stumble will stand firm and take action They not only know God's word, they not only believe that God is Lord over our suffering, but make it known to others. They they take action. They don't just know it. They go out and they tell others that God reigns. That those, they go out to others that are in great darkness, that our God reigns. No matter what's going on around us, no matter the uncertainty that we see, no matter the great swathes of poverty sweeping our nation or these wicked rulers uh, that are coming up left, right and centre or these wars and rumours of wars and self-proclaimed people who think they are gods, we say and we take action, no, our God reigns and the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered the grave is alive and sits on the throne. Dear church, life can stink take heart from Daniel 11 God's word is enough some of you are going through the grind today but do you see these times as God at work not punishing you but through the rubbish of life at work refining you working in you something of infinite value to the praise of his name that one day we shall at last see and understand God reigns let's pray Father, we thank you for uh, this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We believe it's your word. And Father, I pray that you would uh, be at work by your Holy Spirit, feeding our hearts and our minds and our lives, that, Lord, something would be being cemented in, in our spirit this morning. Father, maybe for some of us here, we've just been battered by the waves of life. And we've been filled with fear and dread And maybe we've lost our way or our faith or we've stumbled. But Father, we come to you who alone is wise. We hear your word 
And we pray that it will be like medicine to our hearts. You will cause our, our souls and our spirits to be strengthened by your Holy Spirit, that faith will arise, and that we will see in your word we are led on that path of life. And so, Lord, we, we confess, Lord, that we haven't done that. We say sorry that we so easily and readily turn to other things and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be more reliant upon your word, that we would hunger for your word, that we would hunger for it more than other things in this world or what it may try and entice us and flatter us with, that your word would pull us and draw us and make us more hungry for you. And Lord, I pray also that for those of us that are going through the mill this morning, through the grind, that, Lord, we would recognize you sit on the throne, all things are in your hands, and that whilst it may not make sense, you are at work and we trust you. And we hand our soul and our life to you for your protection, for your care and for your direction. Oh, Holy Spirit, make these wonderful uh, truths of your gospel come to life in our hearts and our minds today. May our hearts sing. And our lips declare that we trust you, Lord, and we will stand firm. Help us, Holy Spirit, to, to be that people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. To find out more about us, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk